turn your Bibles uh, it, to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Well, who's cooking the turkey here uh, this week? Anybody? Oh, yeah, we got a couple men. Bold, brave, yeah. How many have ever had a turkey catastrophe? Anybody ever had it? Oh, yeah. That's a, oh, hey, you know, we got the mic set up here today. You want to come up and, and share with that? Yeah, sometimes uh, uh, we, we, we need the Butterball Turkey Hotline. Anybody ever called the Butterball Turkey Hotline? Yes, there is a 1-800 number. For more than 30 years, the professionally trained turkey experts make up the Turkey Talk line, and they've been answering turkey-related questions each holiday season. It opens every November and December, and they have 50-plus experts that answer more than 100,000 questions. I didn't realize there could be that many questions about turkey, but I guess there are. And, and they're, they're really, uh, they started out, this all started out in 1981 with six home economists working the phones, and now they have an expert for everyone. They're so glad they have Spanish-speaking experts on the phones. They even have uh, the first male ex, uh, talk, turkey talk experts of Jeff. And Robert, if you guys need, you know, if you want to talk to a guy, then you can call that and talk to a guy. And they're just excited about even embracing digital. So you can get Butterball help about your turkey on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Instagram, live chat, and email. So there's no reason to be desperate about your turkey cooking. Now, our group always has a Thanksgiving meal, and tonight's that night, and Gwen has uh, typically done the turkey. She did it last night, and it was outstanding. It was outstanding. So if you have any questions, you don't even have to call Butterball. You can just check with Gwen, and she'll tell you the secret. It's all in the mayonnaise, Tammy. It's all in the mayonnaise. Okay, so you can ask her about that. But there's another kind of desperation when it comes to Thanksgiving and really when it comes to the holidays. Sometimes in our journey to joy, there's times when we're caught in the snare of sin and descend into the depths of despair over our own depravity. Also at this time, we encounter family and friends that we don't usually see relatives. And that can be sometimes a very desperate, a very depressing very discouraging, especially if you've already defriended them uh, due to the election. So I don't know where you're at over this coming holiday, but it can be difficult. But there's good news from God this morning, and I'm excited to share it with you. There's something better than Butterball experts and their turkey talk line. We get to cry out to the Lord who created all things, the Redeemer of heaven and earth. We get to cry out to the great I am God. And that's what Psalm 130 is all about. So look in your Bibles there and let's look at this psalm that talks about crying out in desperation, crying out in the pits of despair. Let's take a look at that and follow along as I read. Out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word do I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with Him is abundant redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Wow! If that's not a psalm of thanksgiving for this week, I don't know what is. Now, what kind of psalm are we looking at when we're looking at Psalm 130? I want you to see four characteristics as we take a look at it. The First of all, this is one of the pilgrim songs. This is one of the Psalms of Ascent. And we've been studying those. We took a break. Now we're coming back to it. And this one fits perfectly with Thanksgiving. Remember, this is a journey to joy. They would sing these songs on their way to Jerusalem three times a year as they literally would go further up as they went up to the Mount Zion and they would go literally further into the presence of God because their joy would be that they could gather with God's people in God's presence to worship in God's place, which is literally what we're doing here right now, and that should be our joy. This song itself is a song of ascent, a song of going up. Look at verse 1. It starts down in the depths. And then look at verse 8. You travel through this song and you end in the heights of worshiping God with His people. The other thing about this song is it's a penitential song. That means it's one of seven psalms that are songs of forgiveness. This is a man... Or a woman who has been is caught in the snare of sin, suffering in the pit of despair over the consequences of sin, and is crying out to God. Two of the most famous penitential songs are those by David, Psalm 32 and 51. Third characteristic, this is a Pauline song, a Pauline psalm. I say that because the great reformer, Martin Luther... When he read this psalm, he says, I see the gospel of Jesus Christ. It reminded Luther of his great sin and his great struggle to find forgiveness and how the gospel came. And he learned that indeed there's forgiveness with the Lord. And uh, in fact, this psalm has been greatly used throughout history. Many of you know of the evangelist in the uh, early, uh, late 1700s, John Wesley. And you heard how he was happened into a church service and they were reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Just the preface to the book of Romans. And Wesley got saved. But... Little did most people know, and I know I didn't know it until this week, earlier in that same day, he went to St. Paul's Cathedral in London and they sang Psalm 130. And here's what Wesley said. He said he was greatly moved by the psalm and stated that it was one of the means that God used to open his heart to the gospel. And that brings us to the fourth characteristic I want you to see about this song. Is it's a practical song. Because sometimes on our journey to joy, right here in this room, we fall into the depths of sin and we need to be reminded of this thing. And here's the whole concept of this song. Be desperate. Be desperate in order to feast on God's abundant forgiveness in the gospel. That's the message of this song. Be desperate 
in order to feast on God's abundant forgiveness. No matter how deep you are in sin and despair, cry out for God's forgiveness, knowing that He delights in abundant redemption. Now, I hope we're going to feast tonight. We're going to feast again on Thursday. We're going to do a lot of feasting on a lot of things, a lot of food that has no eternal value whatsoever. Brings a lot of temporal joy, but no eternal value. And I encourage you, I encourage you to listen today, but also during this week. Feast on God's forgiveness this week and be thankful unto Him that He is abundant in redemption. So this Thanksgiving, here's what I want you to do today, is be desperate and feast on God's forgiveness. There's four course courses in this feast, and the first course is this. Be desperate and cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord for grace in times of deep despair. Cry out to the Lord for grace in times of deep despair. This song has four stanzas, two verses each, and that first stanza is in verses 1 and 2. Look at it again. Out of the depths. I'd circle that in your Bible. That's where it all begins. That's really where every Christian begins their Christian life. Out of the depths, I've cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Now, the first thing I want you to see, and the most important thing about this entire psalm, is that this is a cry from deep misery due to sin. It is a cry from deep misery due to sin. When it says, out of the depths, it literally, that Hebrew word is the deeps. With a plural, the deeps. And when you trace this word, the deeps, uh, throughout Scripture, it, it literally can be the deeps of the sea, the chaos deep in the sea. In fact, this word, this, this word out of the depths, crying out of the depths, is used by Jonah in the belly of the great fish when he is literally drowning in the, in the belly of the fish suffocating, darkness, down in the deeps, seconds away from dying. That's the picture. That's the picture you want to see. But also, it's used of the depths of the grave, the curse of death. It's used of the depths of the grave going down, down into death. It's also used of the depths of despair, the crushing despair Crushing desperation. Listen to these verses from Psalm 69 and see if you can relate. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overwhelms me. And then in verse 14, listen to this. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. That is crushing desperation and despair. We use the same word picture in English, don't we? We say that I am in deep... Now be careful what you say. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Water trouble and then there's... There's other things. But it all means the same thing, right? I am, I am in way over my head. That's the idea here. We're crying out of the depths. But it's not just that. 
This word is also used for the deep things of God. And it talks about the confusing mysteries of life and even sin. Do you know that uh, sin is called a mystery of lawlessness, a mystery of sin? Have you ever made choices in your life and you wake up one morning and you say, how in the world did I get here? Are you with me? Now, you know you made those choices and you know you're responsible, but you are in so deep. You're like, how in the world? That's the mystery, the confusion of God's ways in the ways of our own life. But also it's used for the the uh, the the depths of sin, just the depths of sin, the, the literal consequences of sin. And that's the idea here. I am in deep due to my sin. Now, that's the deeps. And I don't know where you are on that. I don't know where you've been. I know when we look on Facebook, everything's cheery and happy. And I get it. I'm not going to share my junk out there. Uh, But the reality is, this week, not everybody's going to be happy. It's not going to be a Hallmark card. It's not going to be a Norman Rockwell picture. There's going to be people that are in the depths. And really, all of this, part of it, due to sin. Because here's the deal. It's either living in a fallen world due to Adam's sin. It's either the sin of others, but most often it's our own sin that can bring that crushing, crushing despair. You see, the deeps is a place of hopeless despair, even certain death, unless someone somehow intervenes. It's a desperate place where there's no human hope of deliverance. Listen, no one's ever going to seek forgiveness from God until they're desperate. And no one receives forgiveness from God unless they are desperate and cry out to Him. Here's the picture I want you to think. The deeps paint a picture of a drowning sinner who is seconds away of going down, not for the first time, not the second time, but going down for the third time, and not even the greatest swimmer on the planet, not even Michael Phelps, is able to save them. What do you do in that situation? You cry out. You cry out in desperation. The second thing I want you to see about this cry in these verses, it's a cry of desperate urgency. If all this is true, and you are seconds away from drowning in despair, then it's a cry of desperate urgency to be heard and answered. I love this. Out of the depths, I cried. He doesn't say, out of the depths, I prayed. Quietly. Saying, oh Lord, please save me. You know, sometimes we present the Christian life like it just starts in this calm. Everything should be calm and and very very religious and very very nice. No, he's saying, hey, help! And you know what? Maybe when you got saved, you didn't cry out loudly like that. I know I didn't, but in my heart I was. In my heart, I was crying out. And then he says, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. Pay attention. Listen, there's a huge difference between a quiet prayer to be saved and a desperate cry to be delivered from the misery of our sin. Can you hear the urgency? Lord, hear me. Are you listening? Respond right now. He's saying, when he says, hear me, he's not looking for an audience. He's looking for an answer. 
And he says, let your ears be attentive. He's, he's, like, he's like when you're a kid and you need something desperately from your dad. You pull on their pant leg. You, you grab their face and turn them towards you and say, listen to me. Listen to me. I need help. Pay attention to me and my problem. Hear my plea. Solve my problem. This is the urgency of an SOS by a person drowning in their sin and its consequences. And it's an urgency. He's not demanding it. You know, he's not saying this from a position of demand. Now, God, get down here and do this. He's doing it from a place of desperation. God, get down here and do this because I'm going down. I'm going down. And that leads us to the third characteristic. It's a cry for undeserved mercy. It's a cry for undeserved mercy from the Lord who is Lord over all. Now, you've got to understand that this is a cry to the Lord. And in most of your Bibles, that's going to be all caps and to Lord, small caps. Please pay attention to the names of God. It reveals his character in your Bible. And here's what he's saying. There's two ways that we see this is a cry for mercy. The first is by what he's crying for. Look in your Bibles. It says, listen to my voice, the voice or the cry of my supplications. Circle or underline that word supplications. It comes from a verb that means show me mercy. Give me grace. He's saying, look, what I'm asking for, I don't deserve. I'm a sinner drowning in the consequences of my sin. And I don't have a demand. I don't have anything I deserve except punishment for my sin. But I'm crying out for mercy. In fact, in your ESV translation, it says, Listen to my pleas for mercy. Great translation. Repeated. Help. Help. You know, when you're drowning, you don't just say, Help. I'll just wait here now for someone to come. What do you do? Help, 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 please of mercy, crying out. But more importantly, we know he's crying for mercy because of who he's crying to. He's crying to the Lord, who is Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Now, what's that tell you in your Bible? He's caps refers to God's divine name, Yahweh, the great I am. In Exodus 6, this is the great promise keeper, the ever-present redeemer that was always traveling with the people of Israel and was always there to bail them out, to deliver them every time. And not a single time did they deserve it. He is the great I Am, the ultimate promise keeper. But when you see Lord, capital L, small case, you see Adonai which refers to a sovereign ruler and master, someone who has authority over all things. And he's saying, look, I need mercy from the promise keeper and the one who has authority to be the ultimate bondage breaker. So when I see this word, I think present redeemer. When I see that, I think bondage breaker, sovereign ruler. That's who he's crying out to. Think in terms of the Ghostbusters song that asks, who are you going to call? And what's the answer to the song? Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Well, that may work in a movie uh, with make-believe ghosts that slime you and a marshmallow monster that's going to come after you. But in the real world, who are you going to call? 
Who are you going to call? You're going to call the ultimate promise keeper and ever redeemer. You're going to call the bondage breaker and the sovereign ruler who has power and authority to deliver you from the deeps. From the deeps. Wow. That's what desperate people do. They cry out to the Lord for His mercy and grace in times of deep despair over the misery of their sin. Now, why should we cry out to Him him alone? The next two verses tell us. So here's the second course of this feast of God's forgiveness. Number two, be desperate and confess your sinfulness. Be desperate and confess your sinfulness to the Lord, confident in His forgiving character. Confess your sins sins to the Lord, confident in His forgiving character. Now, look at verses 3 and 4 in your Bible. This is the heart of the psalm. And to be quite honest with you, these verses are the heart of the gospel. Here you have in the Old Testament the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I simply made the verses your points to look about. So here it is. First of all, if. Man, that word if is huge. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, the first thing I want you to do is see that he repeats two names for God. He says, if you and the sovereign ruler of all things, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Let's talk a little bit about this idea, this phrase, mark iniquities. In some of your Bibles, it will say, keep a record of. In the Net Bible, it says, keep track of. Basically, what it means is three things. And if you want to jot these down, it's fine. Just just think about it. Marking iniquities means, number one, take note of every sin. Take note of every sin. If you, the ultimate promise keeper, if you, the ultimate bondage breaker, were to take note of every single sin, we would all be in deep you-know-what. Number two, it means to write down every sin. Not just see it, not just take note of it, but to keep record of it. If you, the ultimate redeemer and sovereign ruler, kept a running record of every single thing, we would all be in deep you-know-what. And then number three, bring the punishment we deserve for every sin. So you've not only taken note of every sin, you've not only written down every sin, but... You will bring just punishment for every sin. If you were to do that, we would all be in deep you-know-what. You see, the best way to think about this is, he's saying, God, if you were a list maker and a record keeper, but here's the reality. God is a list keeper. He is a record keeper and a list maker because he is everywhere. Seeing everything. Do you realize there's not a sin we've ever committed that he didn't know about? Do you realize that we have forgotten sins that he has taken note of? Do you realize he knows about the sins that we commit up here and we commit in private where we think no one is going to see us? The sins in the nighttime, the sins in the clothes behind closed doors, sins that we have forgotten, sins that we have planned to do. Sins that we've only done in our mind. 
As the I am God and sovereign master, he knows about sins we've long forgotten, sins we easily excuse, and even sins we don't. Listen, he even knows about and takes note of the sins we don't even realize we committed. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I I tell you, we're in deep. We're in this deep. We're in a place of desperation. Because if the Lord were to do this, and only do this, who could stand? Now you study this word stand. It's a a powerful theological word, and I gave it to you in your notes because I don't want you to miss it. Who could stand? Stand stand in the Bible, when you trace this word through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it means stand in the sense of being worthy to enter God's holy presence and being welcomed by Him as one of His children. Stand means what Abraham did. He stood as a friend of God in his presence. It's what the priests were going to do in Jerusalem. They would stand in God's presence to intercede. It's what the prophets did when they stood to hear a word and speak a word for God. It's what the kings did as they stood to represent and rule on God's behalf. It's what the people of God were traveling to Jerusalem to do, to stand and worship and sing and celebrate in God's presence. And he's saying, look, if God kept track and if he kept that record, no one could enter into his presence to be his servant, to be his friend. No one could stand. And that means then, number two, stand also means stand in the sense of not being able to survive his just punishment. And holy wrath. You see, if we can't enter his presence, then we must stand before him in judgment. And the Bible has all sorts of verses on that. The wages of sin is death. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Who could stand? Who could stand? Who could stand? Listen, if God was just a record keeper, just a list maker, no one would be found worthy to enter his presence. If God's greatest desire was only to find fault and judge sinners for their sin, no one could survive his fiery wrath. And that is bad news, right? For everyone everywhere. Then comes the rest of the verse. Then comes the good news. But there is forgiveness with you that they may fear you. But there is forgiveness. I don't know how I'll say it. This is one of the biggest buts in the Bible. The Bible is full of big buts. And this is one of them. Listen, if God was just these things, but there is forgiveness with the Lord. If God's greatest desire was only to keep track of sin, but... There is forgiveness with you. And in this word forgiveness, and in these verses, especially verse 4, here's what we see. First of all, I want you to see the power of forgiveness is in a sufficient sacrifice. The power of forgiveness is in a sufficient sacrifice. When he uses this word forgiveness, 
and you trace this through the Bible and you study what this means, they're headed to Jerusalem with the promise of a sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath. Someone's got to pay the debt that we owe. And that someone is the the person of forgiveness who is the Lord. The person of forgiveness is the Lord. The Hebrew here literally says this. I'm not trying to show off Hebrew. I'm just trying to get you to get the impact of the original. With you, Lord, forgiveness. With you, Lord, forgiveness. In other words, the Lord is our forgiveness. We don't, we don't come, we don't get saved, we don't get forgiven by ritual, by standing before a man or a woman who grants us forgiveness. We get forgiveness because in our desperation, we cry out to the Lord Himself and say, You saved me because you are the person. And of course, that promise of forgiveness in the Old Testament, we know was revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus Himself, God the Father, provided the sufficient sacrifice of His Son, and the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts and lives. And the purpose of forgiveness in this verse is to fear Him. The purpose is to fear Him. Now, you could do an eight-week series just on that concept. I don't even have eight minutes. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now listen to me. Listen to me right now. Those who are truly forgiven by the Lord fear the Lord and show it by the way they live. If you are claiming God's forgiveness this morning and you do not have the fear of God in the way you live, I would say to you on this verse, you are not truly forgiven. Those who truly fear the Lord, if you're here this morning and you say, I fear God, I fear God, but you've never cried out to Him forgiveness from a place of desperation, you don't fear God. This is a powerful idea, and I, and I kind of thought through it. The purpose of God's forgiveness, and therefore the necessary result of His forgiveness is this, to fear the Lord in such a way that we run to Him, out of loving gratitude, with an obedient faith that freely worships in His presence with His people in His place. Think again. They're singing this song. They are running towards God's holiness. God that is so holy, no one could at that time enter His presence. And yet they're running to Him. Why? Because they needed forgiveness. And they knew that He was Lord who is Lord. And they're like, where else can I go? I've got to go to Him. Be desperate this Thanksgiving. Show that you fear the Lord. Cry out to the Lord from the depths of your misery. What are you waiting for? Some of you are putting this off. Don't wait. Don't wait. Confess your sins to Him. Being confident that with Him there's forgiveness. Amen? Isn't that good? Be confident. Fear Him. But run to Him for forgiveness. And God's desperate people do more than cry out and confess. Number three, God's desperate people cling, cling to God Himself as you wait for His word of forgiveness to be fulfilled. Wait for God Himself. Cling to Him 
as you wait for his word of forgiveness. This is found in verses 5, 5, and 6. Listen to this. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. All of my being does wait. And in his word do I hope. You want to know how much my soul waits for the Lord? Think of the watchman in the night as he waits for the morning. Three things. Wait and hope for the Lord himself. Wait and hope for the Lord himself. Man, two of the greatest Christmas stories is the stories of Simeon and Anna. I love these two. These old, Old Testament saints who are roaming about in the temple of Jerusalem because they know there is where God's presence dwells among God's people in God's place. And they, by the Holy Spirit, are led to recognize the baby Jesus. And in each passage in Luke, it says they are looking for the redemption of Israel. They're applying this verse. They were waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. They were waiting for the Lord Himself. You know that you're truly forgiven and fear God when your greatest hope is placed and you cling to the Lord Himself. Those who cling to the Lord wait in hope for His word of forgiveness to be proclaimed. They wait for His word of forgiveness. Now, you've got to understand, it says, and in His word do I hope, or in His word do I wait. Hope and wait are, are the same word there. And you've got to understand, the historical context, when you went to Jerusalem, you literally had to bring your animal sacrifice before the priest and you had to wait for him to examine it to see if it was worthy and then you had to wait for him to speak the word of forgiveness. There was a lot of waiting for a word from the Lord. Now here's the good news. God's final word of forgiveness has come and that word is who? Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jeez, God has spoken His final Word. We don't have to wait for a Word from a man. We don't have to wait for an animal sacrifice. We don't have to do anything to earn or be good enough. We have God's Word of forgiveness, and it is Jesus. Amen? But you know what? Every one of us are still waiting, though, for the final word of forgiveness. That final word won't come until Jesus comes again. See, we're on this journey to joy, and we're still waiting for the great I Am God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come down and be Lord of Lords, King of Kings. We're waiting for that final word. Amen. And when He comes... We will be resurrected or raptured. We'll be glorified. And God will conquer the enemies. And finally, all things will be made new. We are waiting. Amen? And in the meantime, we still struggle. We're still tempted. We still sometimes enter into the deeps. But we wait. We wait. Wow. That's good stuff. Finally, those who cling to the Lord wait and hope like a watchman waiting for the sun to rise. Now, every time I share this, and it seems the older I get, the more you laugh, but yes, I was a security guard in seminary. I was. You know, maybe next week I'll pull the picture out. It's a frightening picture. 
Yes, it's Barney Fife all the way. It's 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 it's, it's, it's really quite amazing. It is quite amazing. I'll bring it. I said, you know, I didn't want to distract you today. But we would work at night. It was a great great job for a seminarian. There was times of reading and studying, but you had to stay awake. You had to secure doors. There were bad guys, and through the five years that I was there, it got increasingly worse to the point where we were being trained with guns, and thankfully I graduated in time to avoid having to face that decision. But you just can't wait for morning to come. Now, you know it's going to come, so you look for it, you expect it, and, man, you're thankful when it comes because you can go to bed. You can go to bed. Listen, that's how we ought to be waiting for the Lord. We know He's coming, just like the sun rises every day, but we look for it, we expect it, and we can't wait for it to happen. The fourth course in this feast is be desperate and call other desperate people to hope in the Lord for abundant redemption. Call other desperate people, because here's the thing. When you get to the point where you've cried out and you've confessed and you've received forgiveness and you're clinging to the Lord, waiting for that final coming, you can't help but share this with other people. And look at verses 7 and 8. Oh, Israel, the individual turns to the nation. It's as though he's finally gotten to the temple. It's though as though the priest has finally proclaimed God's forgiveness. And he turns to the nation. He turns to the gathering. He said, oh, all of you do what I did. Hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is loving kindness. With him is abundant redemption. And listen, one day... He will redeem Israel and His church from all their iniquities. How can we not call other people to this? Well, here's what I want to do. I've asked Dana. Dana, why don't you come up eagerly, running up here. I've asked Dana to come and share how Psalm 130... Come on, just just run. Just run right... There you go. There you go. Run up here. How Psalm 130 has worked out in her life. She really bugged me until she could do this. And I said, okay, today's the day. So there's your mic. Go for it. Thank you. All right. Well, I wanted to take this opportunity first to thank you all for being so welcoming to me over the last few months because my first experience coming to this church was three or four different people greeting me as I walked through the door and making me feel comfortable instead of being that awkward girl in the back waiting for Dane. So I appreciate that. And that really set the tone for what was about to happen for me over the next few months. Um, I grew up in Osborne, Kansas. It's a very small community, about four hours west of here. And I was raised Catholic. I was really active in the church. And if you would have asked me back then, I would have said, yes, I am a believer in Christ. I do remember asking myself several times if uh, if I died today, what would happen? And I remember that I would have to check off my list. Um, yeah, I don't think I've sinned, right? Um, I try to be a good person. Yeah, I think I'll go to heaven. But I realize now that I did not have that personal relationship with Christ. And when I went to college, I stopped going to church. It wasn't a priority anymore. And uh, I stopped praying as often. And I just, I lost that connection. I did meet my now ex-husband, and he was also Catholic, so 
even though we both grew up with the same background and faith, we did not center our relationship around Christ. And we didn't center it in the beginning, and we didn't focus on it throughout. So fast forward to earlier this spring. I'm divorced, and I was trying to deal with the weight of my sins and trying to figure out how I was going to move my life forward. Through friends, I met Dane, and uh, I could tell from the beginning that he really put God as his priority. And from, uh, from there, he asked me to go to church after some time, and I was open to new experiences, and I wanted to see what this is all about, so I agreed to come. And although it was a lot different from what I grew up with, uh, I got a lot out of that. I believe that first message was about exaggeration and exasperation, and I, I knew those things pretty well at that point. So uh, from there, I was invited to participate in Grow Group and read the books of the Bible. And the first few weeks covered Luke and Acts. And it was really cool to see how the books that I just finished reading were being talked about every day and in the messages on Sunday. And one Sunday in particular, Pastor Bruce was talking about proclaiming Jesus, and he said something that just really connected with me. Uh, After talking about God's promise and Paul's warning for not believing, he asked the question, I still have a little thing, um, will you believe in Jesus and be saved, or will you reject God's salvation in Jesus and be judged? And I think reject God is what stood out to me the most right there. So I realized that I never truly accepted Jesus' forgiveness for my sins, and um, I didn't trust him to guide me in my life. So after church, Dane and I were talking about what the sermon meant to each of us, and of course it was way different. Um, I told him that I needed to trust that Jesus forgives me, and he led me in prayer, and I asked Christ to forgive me and entrusted my life to God. I was very excited. I called my mom that day. She was so happy for me, and I called my sister, told her the good news. And I remember waking up the next morning in my half-conscious sleep state and thinking, I am saved. I am forgiven. And I just, I was so joyous, and I felt like a weight had been lifted from my shoulders, and um, it was just an amazing feeling. But from there, I continued reading the books of the Bible, and uh, it's been a roller coaster of emotions ever since. It has forced me to confront my sins, and it has also opened up a lot of discussion with my friends and my family about God and, and my relationship with God. And I'm concerned that most of my friends and family don't have that personal connection with him like I did not have before. So my priorities in life have shifted. I know that... Um, I find peace in knowing that God loves me completely and unconditionally, no matter who or what comes and goes in my life. And uh, even though I'm human, I have to constantly remind myself that that he is in control. Um, But I know now that everything I do should be for him and not for myself. So I, uh, I know I have a lot to learn. I'm growing my relationship with him through discipleship and through just continued discussions with all of you. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for Jesus and for, for what he has done to me, done for me. And um, I pray that he continues to work through me. And I, I would ask that you each pray for me and for my friends and family as well so that they can know that personal relationship with him too.
Good job. Woo! And you know, you're right, Dana. It's what he's done to you and not just for you. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, God has done a work. Here, here's, the, here's the pattern. Faith brings forgiveness and a fear of him. A fear of him. Now, look at the last part of this verse as we wrap up. There's three reasons why our hope is in the Lord and in his coming kingdom and in the new creation. And this song wraps it up in this way. The first reason we wait and hope and cry out to him is his loyal love is never failing. He is a promise keeper second to none. Why wouldn't we wait on him and hope in him? Number two, his abundant redemption is always available. He ends this song. You know, Thanksgiving, the image of Thanksgiving, uh, you know, that's typical, traditional in our culture, is a cornucopia, right? Now, I know you all know that from Hunger Games, but it does, it's not full of weapons. It's full of overflowing fruit. And this word abundant, there is abundant forgiveness, abundant redemption, abundant transformation. He's a bondage breaker, second to none. And then third, his total deliverance is surely coming. Don't miss in that last verse, those last two words, or last three words, all his iniquities. Listen, he's a kingdom maker. And as Israel, we wait. Israel, or not as Israel, Israel, the nation, waits. And I have a handout back there to pray for the nation of Israel. How to pray for the nation of Israel, because they are still waiting. And as the church, we wait as the bride of Christ. So listen, as you look back on this psalm, God has graciously provided a generous feast of gospel forgiveness. And if you think about the word pictures of drowning sinners, for trusting believers, for waiting followers, and for fearing worshipers. So are you desperate enough? And please understand, this is a pattern of crying, confessing, clinging, and calling that's repeated every day as a believer, sometimes every moment, right? So this isn't just a one-time thing that Dana did and, and many of you did. Some of you need to do it for the first time because if you don't do it for the first time and receive Christ, none of it matters. But once you've received Christ and fear Him, when He brings sin into our lives, we cry out, right? Because we fear Him. So I hope you'll feast. I hope you'll feast because it's abundant. And it's free. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, just filled with gratitude for your grace. And we give thanks for the work that you've done through uh, a team effort, many, many facets. But most of all, through your divine plan of your spirit, your word coming to bear in Dana's life. We do pray that you would protect her, continue to grow her. Father, I pray that you would give her the boldness to call others to be desperate and cry out to you, just like someone in her life, Dane in her life, challenged her to do that. We pray for all of us, Lord, that this Thanksgiving will not just feast on temporal goods and food and yummy things to eat, but will feast on your forgiveness, not just this week, but every day until you come back. May we be like Anna and Simeon, and may we be found looking and waiting and hoping on that day that you will come back. And it could be today. It could be today. So help us, Lord. Help us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Give somebody a hug before you leave class.